Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Stuart, Sean, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Great to catch up, guys. Another action-packed week for us to unpack here at the Roundtable. Um, Double-barreled show as usual. We want to spend the first half um, plumbing the Byzantine ways of the Handong saga, now sitting as an independent outside of the Liberal caucus. What happened? Who know? Who knew what, when? Where does this all go from here? So many twists and turns. Uh, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, has been following it all, and Sean spent the last few days in the nation's capital yeah, imbuing the the fine aroma of scandal as it wafts down the Rideau Canal. Um, no skating this year on the Rideau, I don't think. Maybe it's like a, is that true, Stuart? Like this is, a, this is genuinely a record. Yeah, it didn't open once. Wow. Um, on the back half of the show, though, we got to talk about the Canada Strong and Free Networking Conference. Sean and Stuart were both there. I skipped off to sunny Florida, so I'm going to lean on them for the second half of the show. But... You know, there are there are punishments for everybody, and I guess that'll be mine. I'll happily take it. Uh, so, guys, let's d- dig into the handong thing, because um, there's reporting that's coming out today, uh, Friday the 24th of March, Thursday before Global News and the Globe and Mail, indicating that um, reporters at both institutions had received reports from CSIS that Handong allegedly had had conversations with the Beijing PRC consulate here in Toronto where he advised the Chinese, again, all alleged at this point. We don't have a transcript. We haven't heard this recording. But he supposedly advised the Chinese government as a sitting Canadian MP to delay the release of the two Michaels. Um, this has precipitated a bit of a, an explosion in Ottawa. And uh, needless to say, uh, Han Dong is no longer sitting as a liberal member in the liberal caucus. So Stuart, walk us through what's important here in terms of the consequence of this and maybe some of the key elements in the timeline leading up to Han Dong's decision, but maybe also what PMO coulda, shoulda, woulda, I guess, had they seemingly known about this earlier? Is that the case? Can we extrapolate that? It's a thousand moving pieces. Yeah, there, there's so much to this. And the probably the most interesting part is that Global Mail story came out after Global News published. It was clear, written in the piece, that the Globe had this information already. They had checked up on it. They couldn't get a transcript and they couldn't get a recording. So they sat on it because they couldn't verify it. Um, I don't know what Global has. There's no indication that the Global story, if they had either of those two things, but it is interesting to see the two different editorial processes playing out here. And it shows you where the caution is on the side of the Globe. Um, the 
other interesting part about the globe story is they said they went to the PMO with this information at the beginning of March and the PMO said um, that was the first they had heard of this. So that it's another instance where Justin Trudeau and his office are surprised by these allegations or they profess to be surprised by these allegations. And the one thing I'll just say um, to, to end off here is that everyone is being very cautious about this. Even before this story broke, I found the conservatives were being extremely cautious. They weren't even saying Handong's name. And there is, when you look at the Globe's situation here where they sat on this, I think some people are thinking maybe we should hold our fire on this because we don't know everything. Um, it is worth kind of paying attention to that. There is some caution in the air too. Bit of an interesting timeline here, Sean, because the Globe and Mail is reporting that they brought this allegation by CSIS Ford to the Prime Minister's office March 3rd. Han Dong then went on to sit in multiple liberal caucus meetings. Um, and it's only now, the 24th of March, that he resigns from caucus, I expect under a heck of a lot of pressure from the chief whip of the Liberal Party of Canada. But what happened there? Like, what happened in the last three weeks? Because I think if I was in the prime minister's office, the first thing I would ask for is I would phone up whoever our PCO liaison is with CSIS and say, I want to see the transcript, right? So they must have... Again, this is conjecture, but I think you can put these pieces together. They must have seen this transcript or they must have seen notes or some contemporaneous uh, reporting that CSIS did that this global news story is based on and that the Globe and Mail sat on and is now also reporting again as an allegation. Exactly. And they didn't insist on his resignation or he or insisted that he step aside from the liberal caucus then they only asked uh when the rest of us were brought into the conversation through this global news report which has been the consistent theme throughout this entire episode right um that the government the pmo has information the rest of the country doesn't um, and then it becomes reactive when we're brought into the conversation by these enterprising reporters at Global and the Globe and Mail. Uh, let me just pick up the point that Stuart raised, um, that one gets the sense, having been in Ottawa for a couple of days, that uh, the extent to which our politics may be subverted by foreign influence in general and China in particular was a hot topic that I encountered while I was there. And keep in mind that we have a pretty decentralized, um, you know, notwithstanding the narrative that political leaders exercise centralized control over political parties and so on, we actually have a, a pretty decentralized form of, of candidate selection, of um, electoral district association, kind of internal politics and so on. And so one gets the sense, guys, um, that everyone is feeling a little self-conscious that they might have some of their own skeletons in the closet that they haven't been brought to their attention um, um, in, in, before um, this story broke. And uh, let me just wrap up with this point. I don't know if you guys saw the Financial Times reporting uh, this week um, in which they had 
uh, different sources from United Front groups uh, representing, of course, um, the interests of the Chinese state, uh, claiming to have influenced the election of as many as 45 candidates across different orders of politics in the GTA. Um, and so, you know, there's a couple of different stories we need to follow here. One is the the one we've all been talking about, which is, as you say, Rudyard, when did PMO know about these um, sorts of allegations? What did they do about them, etc.? But then I do think that in parallel, we need to have a conversation about fortifying our politics. One gets a sense um, that we're losing sovereignty over our politics and and we can't lose sight of that. That's a that's a big deal, too. Yeah, thanks for reminding us, Sean, because uh, let me try this argument out on you, Stuart. I, I think the Han Dong thing in some ways is a sideshow. And here's why. I mean, it's in really poor taste. It's arguably maybe in violation of some of your oaths as an MP if you advise a foreign government. I don't know, but it's certainly not a crime. It's not It's not a crime. I, I or any Canadian citizen can go to the Chinese consulate tomorrow and tell them X, Y, and Z if they want to listen to us or not. I mean, it... So to that extent, there's really there's really no there there. Where the there there is exactly what Sean points out. It's in the nomination process. It's in how these campaigns are being funded. It's in large checks suddenly being donated from you know uh, Vancouver ridings into uh, the ridings of certain MPs in Quebec uh, foundations that are involved. It's a whole influence network that has grown up over the years. And I, I worry a little bit here, Stuart, the hand dong thing may be fascinating to, to the bubble crowd in Ottawa because it's all about them and they love talking about themselves. But in some ways, this might just be allegedly someone engaging in behavior that is really bad for their reputation, is completely offside, and may well spend, spell the end of their political career. But that's not where the smoke is. It's not where the fire is. It's on everything else that led up to this moment. That's where we should be focusing. And maybe that's why we need a public inquiry. Yeah, I, I would um, encourage readers or listeners to read our reporter Jeff Russ's piece on how diaspora communities are dealing with this, because there is a certain element here of, you know, this is normal communities of people from the same ethnic community organizing. They've already got community centers and places where they get along. That's how you organize politics. You get people together uh, around a common issue and, you know, you take them to the polling stations. And it's been like that for a long time. And there, you know, there is an element of that that seems a little unseemly to us because sometimes like as a English speaking person, you might not even know what issues motivate them. And as anyone who's been in politics or as a reporter, every single reporter has had someone say, you should see what's going on in X nomination battle. And you know, even now there's one going on in Oxford um, where there's lots of complaints and allegations of this and that. And when it's happening in a place where there's not a lot of English being spoken, it's even harder to investigate this stuff. The second thing that I would point out is that we have very strict um, campaign financing laws, and that means it doesn't take a lot of money coming in under, you know, darkness to influence these things. When you talk about the example of Russian influence in the U.S. elections, there's hundreds of millions of dollars going into that election. It's hard to really push the needle on that. But at the local level, whether it's municipal, provincial or federal, in these nomination battles or even in just actual riding races, 
it seems to me you could really make a difference if you were doing something, anything to put a little extra juice into those races. Sean, let me try just a theory out on you here, which goes back inside the bubble of Ottawa for a moment. But the the prime minister and the PMO's uh, reaction to this, which again has been standoffish, would be the most kind of charitable <laughs> description you could provide. Opaque might be another. Um, it, it originates not because there is some like Watergate-esque conspiracy at the bottom of all this. It's simply a case of gross negligence. It's simply the case of um, a PMO and uh, policy staff uh, sitting there hearing things they don't really want to hear and not hearing them. Um, and not alerting the other parties, not doing all the things they could have, should have, likely now, looking back, would like to have a do-over, a redo on this, but can't. So I wonder, Sean, if what, what this is really about and why the Prime Minister and his kind of inner cadre are so defensive about this is it's really about his legacy. It's about his reputation. It's about the kind of stain, the blot in the history book that could emerge if it does become revealed through a public inquiry or some other means that there was interference going on, the prime minister and the people around him knew about it, and they didn't do anything about it. And they, in a sense, uh, neglected national security for, I wouldn't say partisan advantage, but partisan convenience. And it's just a lousy look. It's a lousy look on anybody, on any prime minister. Is that what this is really about? Is that why there is all of this smoke and mirrors, delay, defer, deflect um, from the beginning to the end of this, the last, you know, six months? I think that's a great encapsulation with uh, the crux of this issue that I don't want to sound like I'm contradicting myself. Um, but when, what I said earlier, I, um, that we we need to keep our eye on two balls, one, this immediate question before us about what the PMO knew and when did it know and why did it not act, including, as you say, um, bringing the the country into the conversation. The second, the, the broader issue of of the um, about our election system. Um, but it seems to me the prime minister only wants to talk about that second issue. Right. He'd have you believe that he's learning about these these allegations in real time like the rest of us. And if he was then that would be the right way to react. Um, but the truth is, that's not the case. Uh, we we have credible reasons to believe um, that the PM or the Minister of Public Safety or senior PMO staff or some combination of the three um, were, uh, were warned as early as 2019 of the systematic efforts on the part of Chinese officials to influence Canadian elections in favor of the Liberal Party of Canada. Full stop. And the only reason we know about those uh, that now is because of these enterprising reporters. And so, uh, you know, I, I think your instinct is right that, you know, maybe they didn't act on the time for various reasons. Maybe at the time they thought, you know, the top priority is to get the two Michaels out of China. So we're not going to rock the boat with allegations of, of foreign interference. And then you you didn't act initially, and so there was easy to find another excuse to to kick it down the road. You know, maybe this was minor. It only had a marginal effect on the election, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, but now we are three years, four years later, uh, and we have a, a much more comprehensive picture of a sustained effort on the part of the Chinese government um, to influence our elections. And our our prime minister, our government, uh, essentially did nothing about it. And as you say, I think at this stage, stonewalling is as as unseemly and kind of excruciating as it is, may be better than the alternative, which is to come clean uh, with the explanation that they did nothing, um, you know, for, as you say, partisan convenience. Yeah, that's my theory of the case. Let's just end, Stuart, just reminding listeners about where we're at now with a public inquiry as a real possibility, given um, the NDP motion having passed, the conservatives supporting. I've heard some people conjecture that, you know, maybe a public inquiry is actually not what you want because it's a long drawn out process that you know historically often gets to middling results um and it could be entirely focused on ottawa and the pmo and handong and a series of as we've talked about kind of floatsum and jetsum frankly that is above the root issue that we need to address which is this influence campaign that was clearly operating at scale at the riding and nomination level and in local politics across key, you know, metropolitan areas in the country. That's maybe where the focus, the energy, the effort needs to go. Yeah, I, I think that is a great um, point because if you put it to an inquiry, there's a fair chance that we have an election before we get a report back on that. And if you are the prime minister, I think probably what you don't like is the idea of losing control of this. Um, the The thing about it is, though, this is all top secret, sort of classified intelligence stuff. So the question of how much we would actually get out of this, I think, is still an open question. Um, the report that would come back would probably have broader conclusions. But, you know, you don't have to go too far back into history to see some pretty harsh reports uh, coming out or Otter General reports even that the government just spends the entire time being on defense and then you get to an election and then you roll into that. Um, I think that's the nightmare scenario for the liberals. And the question about all this too is that this is about our elections. So during an election campaign, it's sort of inherently going to be coming up and people are going to be thinking about it because they'll be going to the polls. Um, so, I mean, I think that's the real nightmare for Trudeau. Let's give you the last word here, uh, Sean. Yeah, let me just follow up on that. I, I think that's right, um, that having having this loom over our next election unresolved in a way may or may not have uh, uh, consequences for the different parties, but I think we can all agree that it would be bad for our democracy. Um, you know, the last thing we want, guys, is to head in the direction of American politics where depending on the outcome, both sides are, are claiming that in some way uh, the, the, the election was, um, uh, was unreliable. And you know, it seems to me if we don't get to the bottom of this before the next election, however we go about doing that, um, uh, that could be a, a, a major consequence, which would be bad for a democracy um, first and foremost. Yeah, my only contribution here would be, you know, I think the prime minister could make a big step in the right direction, again, of making sure that that next election is understood to be free and fairer by simply 
giving permission and instructing, you know, the head of CSIS to brief brief the country on what they can tell us without, as you say, uh, Stuart, um, you know, betraying um, spycraft and all the various intelligence gathering techniques and methods they have. I mean, just simply to have that kind of disclosure. Here's what we knew when we knew it. And here's who knew uh, what we knew when we knew it. It's not going to happen, though, because, again, I think this is about a prime minister nearing the end of his political career who does not want to have this blot on his political ledger and will do anything to try to prevent that outcome. So we'll see how it continues to play out here on the Hub Roundtable in the weeks to come. But on the back half of the show, after this short break, let's drop in on the Canada Strong and Free networking conference that happened in Ottawa this week. Sean and Stuart were there. They can give us a kind of taste of the conversation, the debate, right after this short break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. Okay, guys, uh, you were both at the Canada Strong and Free Networking Conference uh, this week in Ottawa. Um, Sean, let me begin with you. What's your sense of uh, maybe first explain to the half dozen or so people the minority, I'm sure, listening who don't know what the conference is, what it is, and what you took away from it. What's some of the 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 texture, the feeling of this conference that brings together arguably uh, a key kind of leadership group of the conservative movement across Canada? Yeah, it was great to be in Ottawa, notwithstanding the cold and Joe Biden's uh, security detail, which turned the, the city into something of like a police state. Um, the Canada Strong and Free Network, as, as many listeners will know, is the um, is the successor to the the Manning um, uh, the, the Manning Center, and uh, it's now led by Jamil Giovanni, a friend of the uh, Hub Roundtable, someone we've had on our podcast Hub Dialogues, for instance, who's injected a ton of energy and dynamism into the organization, and that was on full display this week at the annual networking conference in Ottawa. You know, I could talk about some of the big keynote speeches. It was kicked off, of course, by former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Uh, Daniel Smith, Alberta Premier, uh, spoke. Uh, Pierre Polyev, of course, the, the Conservative Party leader. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I participated in a panel about uh, the new working class and the potential for um, a kind of realignment politics where conservatives are making inroads in uh, non-traditional voting groups. Um, but... I'll, I'll just zero in on one observation uh, from the, the past few days. And that, guys, is 
the generational change that I observed on the floor um, of the Weston Hotel for for the, the days that I was there, uh, Pierre Polyev, as as you know, has been overperforming amongst eighteen to thirty four year old uh, voters uh, for a whole host of reasons. I thought many of those issues that animate that cohort were uh, part of this year's program: uh, housing, uh, the future of the internet uh uh amongst uh, other issues uh but what struck me guys uh, and this may be a sign of uh of my own aging um but i saw it, a lot of people there you know me 15 or 20 years ago you know wearing suits that kind of fit like tents uh debating uh hayek and burke and all the rest and i just thought um you know it signaled to me that the progress that conservative parties seem to be making with younger voters um, is manifesting itself in the composition of uh, people attending these types of, of conferences and events. And, you know, that represents, if it's, if it's indeed durable, uh, it represents um, a, a bit of a, a, a bit of a, a mix uh into our into our politics you know we'll see how it plays out but that was certainly on display over the past couple of days so Stuart, you know listeners would be very familiar as i am with you know cpac the american kind of amped up almost now um alt-right super trumpy uh congregation of you know, conservative radicals in the U.S. I'm just curious, maybe your sense of how this differs. Like, is there a Canadian version of that? Is this a mini me to CPAC? Is it something unique? Uh, I wasn't there, so you got to explain it to me. Yeah, I actually would say the panels themselves and the speeches were very sort of non-Trumpy, which is, I think that's the criticism of CPAC these days. It has kind of gone to just that wing of the conservative movement in the U.S. And, you know, there was there was a housing panel that was just packed with hub contributors. We had this, the spokes on there and uh, they were talking about all the stuff they talk about in the pages of the hub. And I, it's kind of invigorating to see that it was sort of forward looking. It was younger people. And I had a similar feeling to Sean because my career is now long enough that I'm seeing politicians that, you know, I saw them before they were politicians. And now, for example, you had Sean, Rebecca Schultz on your panel, who's a minister in Alberta. When I was, I in 2019, I covered the election. I was on Jason Kenney's in his truck with Laureen Harper. And there was a candidate in there who was so far ahead in her race that she could just help other people out. And it was Rebecca Schultz. And there's a moment in your head where you think she seems pretty good. Like I'm, she might go somewhere. And a couple <laughs> of years later, she's a municipal affairs minister. Um, do, so do you, hear, do you want to hear something wild? Uh, so I was on the panel with minister Rebecca Schultz, who's been a really effective minister in the Alberta government. Um, it turns out I interned with her with her husband, uh, <laughs> which, as you say, is a sign that, uh, you know, I, I like to think of myself as a as part of the younger generation of conservatism. But I, I guess that no longer holds. <laughs> yeah, this is the age where you start to realize you're not. It's like it's a slow dawning that happens. <laughs> uh, I would say probably the most interesting thing to me actually was something I noticed. I'm writing a piece for Monday that you guys can read when it's out, but um, just something I picked up in both Harper and Polyev's speeches is that Polyev did something he's been doing for a while now, which is that he's been going after big pharma about the opioid epidemic, saying these guys made money on this. McKinsey made a business plan to get people addicted to opioids. 
And he has been calling them scumbags in his speeches, public speeches, which is just a bit of a, you know, traditionally conservatives are not going to go after corporations in that kind of a manner. Um, and then I noticed in Harper's speech, um, he said something about tax hikes on people, on ordinary people, working class people, small businesses, yet big corporations are not feeling this. And, you know, we are now four years from Jason Kenney winning a big election on a big corporate tax cut on sort of general supply side, traditional conservative ideas. And even right after that, Kenny was starting to question that, getting into more reform conservatism. Maybe maybe we shouldn't be quite as neoliberal as we always have been. And I don't know if this is a policy shift or a rhetorical shift or if it's a coincidence in these two speeches, but it is something worth noting. It surprised me from Harper, not as much from Polyev, but I was surprised to see Harper say that. Sean, what do you think? I mean, is is I mean, historically, this is the Conservative Party of Canada has been the party of Bay Street, right? It's been the party of big business. It's been the party of capital, um, not workers. If you want to take a put a Marxist lens over it, I mean, is there a broader shift here? You were on a panel talking about reaching out to uh, blue collar voters. Um, they're probably less interested in you know the profit and loss statements of. Canada's um, oligopolies and banking and telco and all those um, lovely gatekeepers that have these remarkable dividends that uh, they pay each year largely into public pension plans. But I, I won't go there. I'm on verge of a rant, but I promised myself this week I would not do it. Um, so over to you, Sean. Yeah, I think there's I think there's something to that, uh, Rudyard. Um, and I would point to the last Ontario election as a proof point. Um, the, the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party was endorsed by seven or eight private sector trade unions. Um, and the, some of those same unions campaigned against the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party through the Working Families Coalition one election ago. Um, and I think that change uh, reflects a couple of things. One, um, some progress on the part of conservative parties or center-right parties in the country to be more responsive to the interests of uh, working class Canadians. Um, but I'm, the second thing is, uh, it reflects, I think, a, a, to a greater degree, the abandonment by left wing parties of that longstanding part of um, center left and, and progressive voting coalitions. I mean, uh, it's just self evident if you listen to the rhetoric and the, the priorities of center left or progressive party leaders across the country that they have increasingly leaned into a set of propositions about race and identity and culture and, and sexuality and so on, and abandon a lot of the traditional class-based kind of materialist concerns of, of the working class. And so I think it represents a, a pretty big opportunity for center-right parties if they're able to make some adjustments to the way they think and talk about public policy to reach out to those voters and bring them within the fold, which of course they'll need to do if they ultimately want to uh, raise their ceiling of support, which is something we've talked a, a bit about on this on this show in the past. But I'll just stop with one final point. In so doing, guys, I don't think conservative parties can lose um, their insights about the benefits of a market economy, of economic dynamism, of uh, the broad-based benefits of economic growth, Keep in mind, guys, that we are living in a world of 2% growth. 
that isn't just a reflection of coming out of the pandemic. It's where we've been for the past 20 years. And as uh, my my uh, one of my intellectual heroes, uh, George Will, likes to say, the difference between 2% growth and 3% growth isn't 1%, it's 50%. And it, it seems to me, um, as conservatives strike this balance between reaching out to these new and different voters, um, they can't lose sight. They can't trade off um, their... Um, credibility as the party of growth and, and dynamism and economic uh an economic opportunity i think that ought, needs to be kind of core to how they think and talk about public policy great insights as always sean spear okay guys let's uh wrap up the show um no doubt next week's episode <laughs> equally action-packed so much going on but it's always such a pleasure to unpack the week's events with both of you and hopefully leave our listeners with some new analysis and insights so thank you everyone for listening and all the great feedback uh, on this podcast we really appreciate it it keeps us going each and every friday i'll say goodbye to you now and we'll talk to you again next week Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues. It's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.